Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com. This is an RNZ podcast. Hello, I'm Simon Morris. The male gaze has long been a complaint about the movies, even when a film had women stars, women writers, women producers and women directors. The end result still had to be male-friendly to keep the men who ran the studios happy. But recently, things are shifting, and finally the female gaze has become a thing. I've always been ashamed of my body. Your body's beautiful. I wish you could see that. Everyone wants something different. I don't judge my clients, lest they're total assholes. <laughs> Good luck to you, Leo Grand was mostly taken from the Emma Thompson character's eye view, a twist on male gaze sex worker movies like Pretty Woman. But surprisingly, films about sex workers and strippers and movies aren't that successful when they're about males looking at female performers. It proved disastrous in the notorious Showgirls, for instance. Made me feel like a hooker. You are a whore, darling. No, I'm not. We all are. We take the cash, we cash the check, we show them what they want to see. Irredeemably seedy, you'd think, but swap the sexes in films like The Full Monty and particularly Girls' Night Out staple Magic Mike, and suddenly it's, if not good, clean fun, then certainly harmlessly naughty, even strangely empowering. You're so good at this. I'm not going to just let us give up on it. I want every woman that walks into this theatre to feel that a woman can have whatever she wants, whenever she wants. Clearly, star Channing Tatum, a former male stripper himself, and director-producer Steven Soderbergh know their audience as they weigh in with number three of the franchise, Magic Mike's Last Dance. On the darker side, family tension from the team behind Oscar-winning The Father. While Hugh Jackman is the star of The Sun, the point of view is just as strongly that of his wife and ex-wife, played by Vanessa Kirby and Laura Dern. Why don't you answer me? I do answer you. The look in his eye is disturbing. She wants to turn us against one another. Black there is so much joy in our family. I feel like a complete failure. But this week's best female gaze film is one that you hardly notice doing it until the end. It's called After Sun, a father and 11-year-old daughter's holiday remembered many years later. And it may be the best film I've seen so far this year. Why don't you go over and introduce yourself? Dad, you know, they're like kids. Why don't you go over and introduce yourself? Hmm. Sophie, they're like old after Sun's already won dozens of awards round the world, it's up for an Oscar for lead actor Paul Mescal and another three BAFTAs, including outstanding debut for its writer-director Charlotte Wells. I talked to Charlotte later in the show, but first I had to sneak into Ladies' Night at my local for Magic Mike's Last Dance. We welcome stage the one, the only... Magic Mike. 
the law says that you cannot touch. But I think I see a lot of lawbreakers up in this house. The first Magic Mike movie was an eye-opener for me at the time, though ten years later the plot's rather faded in my memory now. I do remember it was about male strippers led by Channing Tatum and a leering Matthew McConaughey, and it was predicated on the idea that girls just want to have fun, so why shouldn't they? What did you want before Miami? I just wanted to escape my life. Two movies later, our hero is currently broken single, working as a barman for the rich and glamorous, including divorcee Maxandra Rattigan, played by Salma Hayek. Okay, the first thing anyone going to a Magic Mike movie has to jettison is any concern for logic in the storyline. If I say just go with it right at the start, can we take it as read for the rest of the movie? Do you like bartending? It's not really what I do. What is it that you really do? Max's millionaire ex-husband, Roger Rattigan, made his fortune from his own theatre in London. He's currently showing a hit drawing room drama about unrequited love or something. No wonder Max is on holiday in Miami. At her party, Max spots barman Mike across a crowded room. Something about him makes her offer him a fortune to strip for her. Then you came along and gave me these unexpected magical moment that made me remember who I really was. We agreed. No questions, okay? After Mike's performance, Max decides that he could be just what the stuffy theatre scene in London needs. She comes up with another enormous cash offer that Mike can't refuse, and suddenly he's no longer a stripper. He's a West End showrunner. Come with me to London. I'm going to put on a show at this famous theatre. Salma Hayek is an unexpected West End entrepreneur, certainly, but that's by no means the most unlikely thing about Last Dance. But at least there's an explanation. Her part was originally going to be played by English theatrical Thandy Wayne Newton, who suddenly remembered a pressing appointment after a week or so, leaving the floor clear for Salma. People are numb, disconnected. We're going to wake them up with a wave of passion they've never felt before. Hell yeah. The name Rattigan seems to be a nod to the distinguished playwright Sir Terence Rattigan. But since it's highly unlikely that anyone on the production of Magic Mike's Last Dance has ever heard of Sir Terence, I can only assume some money changed hands. The fact is, the English theatre isn't quite the cast-iron money spinner it is in this film. The Rattigan estate is probably not too snobby to turn down a fee for naming rights. What's this show about? It's the same or will she marry for love or money? So what does she pick? Love or money? The real question is, why does she feel like she has to choose? It sounds to me she just needs to let go. But enough digression. Is there a plot to Magic Mike's Last Dance? Indeed there is. Max Rattigan fires the original cast of the theatre's hit play, hiring a team of male strippers to take their parts. And here to rewrite the book, choreograph the entire evening, arrange the lights and music in just one month, is theatrical first-timer Magic Mike. Without further ado, I give you the visionary artist Magic Mike. 
So. The real question is, why do you love her? No one's believed in me like your mom has. Now I know what you're thinking. Half of you are thinking wild horses won't drag me to see Magic Mike's last dance. And the other half aren't thinking at all. You just want to know if Magic Mike and his hunky Brits will get their kit off in a professional manner. And since we've got the lovely Salma Hayek there anyway, will she abandon her wafer-thin character, disgruntled English theatrical divorcee, and do a bit of dancing with Channing? And some good... Maybe that as well. Well, you don't need me to answer that, of course. Personally, I was a bit disappointed that a story nominally set at a West End theatre was so light on British guest stars. But Channing Tatum and director Steven Soderbergh realised that big-name actors were an unnecessary expense. After all, this was hardly aimed at the Terence Rattigan set, was it? Wait, I know you. You were a cop. Right. Is your arrestor? What's your name? Kim. Let you off with a warning, right? The credentials for The Sun are undeniably impressive. The film's predecessor, 2020's The Father, won Oscars for its star Sir Anthony Hopkins and its writing team Christopher Hampton and Florian Zeller, who also directed it. The new film sees a return of all three, along with the stellar trio of Hugh Jackman, Laura Dern and Vanessa Kirby. What are you doing here? Nicholas hasn't been to school in almost a month. Like The Father, it's based on a stage play, also written by Zeller. It opens on new mother Beth crooning to her baby boy. Her husband Peter watches fondly, and then there's a knock at the door. It's Peter's ex, Kate, at the end of her tether. Ah, Beth. Um, sorry, Kate's just here to talk to me about... Um... Nicholas, we've just found out he hasn't begun to school for almost a month. It's not only that, Peter. He's not well. After their messy divorce, Kate has been bringing up their teenage son, Nicholas. He's dropping out of school, he's got no friends, and he's starting to scare Kate. Peter feels pressured as his old family encroaches on his new one, but he agrees to sort it out for Kate. I want us to ask, how are you? Has something happened? You realize the school is talking about expelling you. Can I live with you? Peter has always prided himself on being a good father, even if he's not always around. He's a busy lawyer, after all. He sweeps in, though, and offers an elegant solution. Nicholas can move in with him, Beth, and the baby. He'll go to a new school and sort his life out. Job done. You can't just show up here with no warning. What's wrong? Has something happened? Yes. Nicholas has come to live with me and he's improving, but he's a little fragile. Kate is relieved. New wife Beth is less confident. She barely knows Nicholas, who's shown no interest in getting any closer to her. And once Peter starts trying to get to the bottom of what's bothering Nicholas, it's plain that easy answers are not going to work here. I've tried to be there for you. I've tried to give you strength. What's going on? Are you on drugs? You think you can just live your life doing whatever you feel like? I don't know what's happening to me.
Nicholas is played by young Australian actor Zen McGrath in his first major role. He's all too convincing, initially monosyllabic, then demanding, and then laying the blame on his increasingly desperate parents. If you've ever met a teenage boy, or been one, you'll recognise Nicholas instantly. I feel like a complete failure. The father explored dementia, a common problem with our increasingly ageing population. The son is the nightmare of parents facing a range of mental illnesses that their own parents either were unaware of or refused to accept. Well, that was certainly the case with Peter's own father, a small but terrifying role for Anthony Hopkins. This never suits you. I can easily take on the role of monster and bow to your... Perfection. Yes, you have suffered so much and uh, your daddy was not nice to you, nor to your mama. Fine. So what? Don't you think it's time you started growing up? Because believe me, it is pathetic. Peter's fear has always been ending up like his cold and distant father. But parenting is hard and with each false step he feels he's letting everyone down. Not just his son, but his two wives. For all the fact that Hugh Jackman and young Zen McGrath have the lion's share of the dialogue, we find ourselves looking through the eyes of Kate and Beth. There used to be so much joy in our family. You give these big speeches about life and then you abandon us. I have the right to reinvent my life! Laura Dern as Kate, unable to face a problem she's unqualified for, keeps looking back on an idealised past, a neverland of happy families. Meanwhile, Beth, a silent, watchful performance by Vanessa Kirby, knows how unhappy Peter was back then. And she also sees him making the same mistakes with his new family that he did with his old one. You said you don't feel very close to people your age. Your other son, he needs you as well. And you were at work all of the time. Has he been able to talk about the divorce? The son doesn't have the acting pyrotechnics that Olivia Colman and Anthony Hopkins brought to the father. And after a while, the central dilemma and Nicholas's refusal to face up to it starts to grind us down as much as it does the struggling parents. Like the father, the son offers a clever theatrical ending. But this time, despite the talent on both sides of the camera, it doesn't quite feel enough. It's my little boy. I can't give up on it. Sun surprised many pundits by picking up an Oscar nomination for Best Actor and doing even better at the BAFTAs. Three nominations, including outstanding debut for writer-director Charlotte Wells. I love you. Love you. because not many of these pundits had seen After Sun when it was nominated. It's a little gem with two dynamite leads and more than one puzzle at its heart that only come clearer when you think about it later. Charlotte Wells, congratulations on a wonderful movie. Thank you so much. Thank you. Have you been surprised at how well it's been doing worldwide? I counted up 155 nominations and 59 wins, according to Google. 
Um, yes, I I have been surprised. I don't think any of us really saw this coming, saw the film having the reach that it's had, but it's uh, certainly nothing to complain about. On the surface, After Sun seems uh, simplicity itself. It's 11-year-old Sophie going on holiday with her father, Callum. So who are they? Who are Sophie and Callum? Sophie and Callum are um, father and daughter. Sophie's 11. Callum is 30, about to turn 31 on this holiday. They don't live together, so this is treasure time that they are spending on holiday, which we learn they do every year, go on holiday together. And uh, they are close. From the moment that we see them, we see his broken arm resting on her on the bus as they travel from the airport to the hotel late at night. And it is a warm and loving relationship. It seems an idyllic holiday, but there's a a slight sense that there's a bit of pressure, particularly on Callum. I mean, can you explain that at all? Yeah, I mean, over the course of the film, it is gradually revealed (laughs) um, that Callum is struggling privately in a way that he goes to great lengths to protect Sophie from. You know, the actual details of this, are well, they don't all come out, but they come out in sort of smaller doses throughout the film. But it took me a while to notice another thing, though anyone under 25 would have spotted it immediately. No cell phones. There are no cell phones at all on this uh, on this holiday. It's true. The uh, The film is told unobtrusively, but definitively from the point of view, or at least the overarching point of view of Sophie as an adult 20 years later. So she is reflecting upon this week, this last holiday that she spent with her dad in the late 1990s, where they were joyously cell phone free. And you save up the revelation of whose memory it is, Sophie's memory, as you say, until nearly the end of the movie. That's a long way to discover this, isn't it? It is, but it's interesting because I think different people perceive that at different points in the film, and that's been one of the most interesting parts of sharing the film with audiences is seeing how people's individual experiences that they have with family, with life, shape their perception of it. And certainly it was our intention that that perspective does build over the course of the film, that it builds through these recurring rave sequences that we see Uh, So that when you discover at the end that it is, in fact, Sophie is an adult watching these tapes, it isn't necessarily a gotcha moment, but something we've been slowly building towards that it feels in some sense inevitable. The pair of them are so loving and so likable and all that sort of stuff. And yet, for me, at any rate, there seemed a faint feeling of not dread exactly, but a bit nervousness. The fact that it was all a bit too good to be true. And I kept thinking, I hope something ghastly doesn't happen. I mean, (laughs) was that a deliberate thing? Because as I say, it, it felt a little too good to be true sometimes for the first half of the movie at any rate. Yeah, I think that speaks to this idea that when you reflect upon a moment, a memory that is straightforwardly one emotion, say that emotion is joy, is complicated with this new lens that you have, this Mm. separation of time, whether it's 10 days, 10 months, 10 years, 20 years, as is the case here. And so moments are complicated by that. They, They are seen from two perspectives. They're seen from within the the simplicity of the moment and the complexity of being reflected upon many years later. And I think it brings a a feeling that I think at times feels like dread because perhaps adult Sophie 
she knows what's coming. She knows there is a, an imminent loss in a certain way, but certainly complicates the feeling in the moment. People in the audience, I think, are so used now, whenever they see a young girl like Sophie, particularly a delightful young girl, she's 11 years old and she's clearly, you know, adores her father. But we're so used to the idea that something terrible is going to happen. And I was watching Sophie all the time thinking, oh, no, don't get into trouble. Whereas, in fact, I should have been perhaps looking at Callum, the one whose life seems to be about to fall into disarray in some way. Yeah, it's tricky. We were definitely aware of that through every stage from writing to production to post-production, the expectations the audiences might be bringing based on other films and other media and that sense that an 11-year-old is somehow inherently at, at risk or the ubiquity of the deadbeat dad on screen mm. who is absent or estranged and he's absent from her life in the sense that they don't live together but but again it was important to me to represent a father who was great at being a father like that's something that Callum finds a real sense of purpose in and strength in and I think they give each other something that they don't get elsewhere and that's what makes that relationship so special to each of them that they're the best versions of themselves when the other is around. Obviously, casting in this was was absolutely critical. How how early in the pre-production did you discover Paul, Paul Mescal, who's up for all the awards at the moment? He certainly is. Um, we cast Paul, we, we, we made final casting decisions, I think, around March, and we began to shoot in May, so a couple of months ahead of time. But it had been a long process, and we started with Sophie. It was a six-month process to find Sophie, which we knew would be true, and I worked with Lucy Party. My casting director, who has an extraordinary talent at finding discoveries, uh, especially children who have never performed before, and that's how we found Frankie. She really was a hard-won discovery, had this talent she had no idea she possessed, had never acted before, not even in a school play. Now, this is Frankie Corio, and I would have thought that actually your time, the time would have been very tight to be able to find somebody who is the specific age that she is. You clearly only had a few months to be able to find that right person. Yeah, well, we had a good six months, I think, in the end to cast. So it was a good amount of time. But I think what was interesting over the course of casting was finding that 11 really is this precipice between childhood and adolescence. But the same was true of, of Callum. We realized that we were looking for somebody occupying this middle ground between one stage of life and another, you know, leaving young adulthood and and entering a more serious stage of life, I suppose, in into his 30s. And that was tricky too, is finding somebody who looked younger than they were in Callum, who was closer to 30. And in Paul, we ended up casting down a little bit because Paul wasn't that age. He was 25 when we were shooting. Had you seen him in anything before? I mean, he was famously in Normal People, which was the great lockdown hit of the COVID era in some respects, wasn't it? Yeah, of course, that's that's where I knew him from alongside, I think, just about everybody else. And I uh, had the opportunity to meet. We had an amazing conversation. He was committed right away to the role and to the character and was so thoughtful and prepared and made it clear that he would be a great partner. And that's always what I'm looking for, collaborators who can make the work better, who are, are willing to be pushed and to push and together to realize the the best version of the project. And that's certainly what I found in Paul. He was tremendous to work with. He's also an excellent actor, always striving to be better. 
And I think he has a really interesting physicality too, the way that he moves, the way that he occupies space. He felt right in so many ways. I mean, I thought the same thing in a way about Frankie Corio playing Sophie, where there was something about her ease with older kids. She hangs out with sort of some of the teenagers and you think, oh no, this is where it's going to go wrong. But it doesn't. It goes really right. Everybody is, everyone behaves so well. Yeah, they're they're a good group of kids. <laughs> and and uh, I, I don't know, I was interested in, in portraying something that felt somewhat authentic to my experience that wasn't punctuated by excessive drama just for the sake of making a film where the drama and the tension really relates to people's internal state of mind and internal conflicts. That's the kind of conflict that I'm interested in as a writer and as a filmmaker. And it's hard sometimes to communicate on screen and it requires walking a knife edge of subtlety sometimes not to fall too dangerously onto either side. I have to ask about the title. Why is it called After Sun? After Sun is, yeah, intriguing. I'm not sure if if this is also true for you, but certainly in the UK, After Sun is the lotion that you apply after burning Mm. your skin inevitably as soon as you step into the sun. (laughs) And that was just the title. It was in reference to the lotion and it was always After Sun. And I find that titles either come easily or never at all. And it was always after Sun, and it's been intriguing to hear people's interpretations of why it might be an appropriate title. But for me, it just always was, and my collaborators seemed convinced enough to allow it to go forward. The thing about Callum's struggle and the way that it's portrayed in the film and the way that it is to some degree held at arm's length in the film is Mm. that because this is a recollection, this is Sophie looking back, there's a sense in which the scenes in which Callum is alone are, are imagined, you know, or, or Sophie filling in the gap with information acquired through time, with a loss acquired through time. Certainly for me, this is the, the last time that they spent together. And, and so she doesn't have full access to Callum. And it is about the fact that parents remain unknowable to some degree. And I think Paul speaks really nicely also to the fact that Callum doesn't fully understand what's going on. He knows that he succumbs at times to these feelings of intense desperation, but can't necessarily articulate why. And uh, and and that's, you know, a central part to the film. There are no easy answers when it comes to crises of mental health, and there are no easy answers here. That ending is, it's the happiest and most unhappy ending at the same time. You know, the the farewell at the airport is just devastating, I thought. Yes, it is. It is. It's a farewell. And it is her letting him go to some degree. But I think it's also about the love that endures and what he gave her and what can transcend loss. I have to ask if this is the era of the small, perfectly formed feature film. I'm looking down the list of the Oscars and the BAFTAs, and there's an awful lot of really low-budget films tucked away in there behind the Tom Cruise spectaculars and things like that, which I think is a good thing. Yeah, it's a real mix. I mean, certainly it's also a time where $200 million films are Mm. kind of in in the same spaces, but... You know, it's it's great to know the audiences are willing to show up for films that are produced with less money than that. And the audiences have been willing to show up for this. Uh, I'm looking to continue to use film as a means of genuine, you know, artistic expression. And I'm not sure what's next, but I know that 
it will be a process of discovery when I finally have the space and time to face that blank page once again. Wish we could have stayed for longer. Me too. Writer-director Charlotte Wells. Her debut feature, After Sun, nominated for three BAFTAs and one Oscar this year, comes out next week. I can't recommend it highly enough. The performances of Paul Mescal and 11-year-old Frankie Corio will knock your socks off, I promise you.